so we spent one winter dock sledding uh, from the Mackenzie River across Great Bear Lake uh, and then down um, across Great Slave Lake. Uh, and it was about a thousand miles. Hey, this is Seek Outside Podcast. Kevin Dennis and today's guest is Dave Freeman from Freeman Explore. Many of you may be familiar with them from the year in the wilderness um, that they spent in the Boundary Waters. Also, they've done some other awesome trips. They did a 14-month sailing trip after the Boundary Waters, North American Odyssey. Um, we're going to touch base on all that stuff today. Um, super interesting. Um, so anyway, how you doing today, Dave? Doing great. Thanks for having me. Oh, thank you for coming on. So let's kind of get right to the point. What is the current status of the Boundary Waters and the mining? Sure. So, uh, so Amy and I live in a little town called Ely, right on the edge of the Boundary Waters Kenora Wilderness, and there's a copper mine being proposed um, just outside of town and just on the edge of the Boundary Waters. And uh, we've been sort of working against uh, this proposed mine since 2012 um and it's been sort of a rocky uh, start we've got some wins we got some some setbacks and um so what's happening right now is the mine has not been built um but twin metals which is a chilean mining company um recently released their mine plan and so um like the uh, sort of scientists that save the boundary waters and other uh, groups are sort of picking apart the mine plan, uh, figuring out, um, you know, what kind of comments need to be submitted uh, to, to really help show why this mine shouldn't be built. Um, and so that's, that's a big thing that's happening right now. Um, there also uh, is a bill working its way through the house um, that was introduced by uh one of our state representatives, Betty McCollum, um, and then uh, also a representative from Michigan and uh, Florida. Um, so that's a really good action item right now because that's working to basically um, withdraw all of the land um, within the Superior National Forest in the watershed of the of the wilderness of the Boundary Waters um, from um, hard rock mining, like these copper mines. And um, so that's working its way through the house. And that's something that people can do if they go to savetheboundarywaters.org. Um, there's a way for them to contact their representatives and encourage them to back that bill, which is um, which is doing pretty well. It's making its way through the house. Okay. So what is your, what do you feel is going to happen or do you just not have a read on it yet? Uh, well, I think, you know, we're still in a good place. Uh, I don't think the mine is going to go through because there's overwhelming, um, opposition to it, uh, both here in Minnesota, but across the country as well. Um, and so I think eventually it's going to get stopped, but it's the kind of thing that is, uh, you know, it's a, it's a long, it's a long fight for things like this. Um, and we can't really sort of let our guard down because, you know, the mining companies just sort of trying to sort of grind ahead and uh, we try to need to meet them at every step of the way. Now, one of the things, and I know we're going to have some people that are very pro-mine. I know mm -hmm. even in Eli, Eli mm -hmm. sure. signs up that are pro-mine, pro-job part. Um, I live in southwestern Colorado. We have a lot of old mines around here. We've had, you know, tailings, ponds that have um, busted out and basically flooded the animus, killed everything there, right? And it seems to me that, um, you know, the Boundary Waters is a giant watershed, right? And the the danger there would seem to be 
relatively large if something went awry. And it seems like so many times mining companies and where I probably sit on the anti-mine side comes from two things. One, they don't really always seem to have a plan to um, take care of the stuff after they're done, right? So it seems relatively short-sighted in that fashion. But also, I went to a um, talk a couple months ago. It was a local guy here who used to be relatively high up in the Forest Service. And he was his, was, his talk was on the history of public lands and a lot of things associated with it. And he was like, you know, the mining companies and stuff, they, they don't pay a fair share. You know, people talk about the anti-public lands. People say, well, public lands don't pay for themselves. Well, it's because you don't charge a royalty on the mining of the land that you're basically giving away. And a lot of it is given away to foreign companies, like you mentioned, Chilean mine and stuff too, right? So it's not even like it's really kind of being given away to an American company. Right. Yeah, that's true. And I, I think you make a really good point about the fresh water. Uh, so the the Boundary Waters is part of the Superior National Forest. It's one million of the three million acre Superior National Forest. And the Superior National Forest contains 20% of all the fresh water in all of our national forests across the country. So like when you look at the Boundary Waters from above, it, it literally looks like it's like half land and half water. And, um, you know, I'm sure like when you came and visited us in the Boundary Waters, it's like we just we just drink the water right out of the lakes. Like you don't even have to filter it or treat it or anything. It's like it's so clean you can just drink it. Uh, so it really is a unique place, but that also makes it a very fragile place for a type of uh, mining operation like this, um, just because of the massive amounts of clean, fresh water that we have here. I agree. Now, <clears throat> you guys, um, I know a lot of people know, but you guys spent a whole year in the wilderness. I went in and I think it was March and helped with a resupply. And it wasn't like you came out and met me at the trailhead. You met me at the wilderness boundary. You stayed stayed in there the whole time. Um, And I think it's funny because I often see our customers chatting and they'll be talking about, well, what should I do for a five day or a seven day or a nine day trip? That seems long. And you, you know, you're planning year. I mean, we're going to talk about boundary waters, sailing trip you said was 14 months um the uh north american odyssey was about three years um you plan really long scale expeditions (laughs) yeah that's sort of our thing i guess (laughs) but you know one of the sort of strategies we use for that is you know we really break uh break those long journeys down into much smaller chunks uh, and, you know, for the year in the wilderness, we had resupplies um, approximately every two weeks, except for in the spring as the lakes were thawing and in the fall as the lakes were freezing. Then we had about six weeks worth of supplies brought in. But but basically, as a general rule, we were thinking about two weeks at a time. Uh, and so we really broke it down like that. You know, what food, what supplies do we need for this two week chunk? Um, and we just sort of really thought of it as like, you know, 24 or 26, uh, two week canoe trips or two week, 
dog sledding trips or whatever the season was, uh, rather than sort of getting overwhelmed with sort of the the large, uh, long time frame. Can you, uh, can you give me like a brief history of the year in the wilderness? So were you moving the whole time? It sounds like you were maybe paddling, um, or, and or dog sledding is, is, were you moving or did you have a base camp? Yeah. So, so, uh, we enter the wilderness on September 23rd, so the fall equinox, and the lakes started freezing in the middle of, um, well, around Thanksgiving, and then they didn't actually really freeze until uh, Christmas time. Um, but so the first few months we were traveling by canoe, uh, and the, the Boundary Waters is a, a massive series of lakes. Uh, we visited over 500 different named lakes, rivers, and streams inside the wilderness during the year. And there were still over 300 that we didn't have time to visit. So it's it's a vast area. We camped in about 100 different places. Uh, so during the paddling season, we were, you know, moving camp, not every day, but, you know, we were moving camp, you know, maybe three, four days a week. Uh, and then uh, after the lakes froze over, we traveled by on cross-country skis and we had three sled dogs brought in and they pulled our supplies on uh, two long, like 10 foot toboggans. Um, mm. And and during the winter, we didn't move as often. We were moving camp uh, on average, like once or twice a week. Um, and then when we were base camped, we would, uh, we'd skijore. So basically we would ski and the, the sled dogs would be hooked to like a rope with a little bungee cord and a waist belt. Uh, and so they would sort of help, help pull us and we would be skiing. Uh, so we're sort of working with the dogs to travel. Um, and so the lakes were frozen from December through the end of April. Um, this time of year, uh, in April is when the lakes start breaking up and the, the ice goes away. And so then once the ice was gone, we were traveling by canoe again for the rest of the year until we paddled out in September. Got it. Does the, does the wilderness area have a restriction, I guess, on how many days you can spend in, in one spot? Uh, yes. So it's, um, Basically, it's a rule that I, I believe is in place for almost all of the national forests. Uh, it's a 14-night uh, limit, so you can't sure. camp in the same place for more than 14 nights. Um, and there was only one time we, we used up all 14 nights, and that was during the season when the lakes were uh, were. Uh, freezing in the fall um, and we used all 14 and then we sort of scrambled to another one that was really close. But, you know, most of the time we were moving much more frequently than that. Sure. You guys really had the social distancing down on that trip. Yeah, we did. Yeah, we, yeah, we did. <laughs> now I know you had, you had people that came in and did resupplies. I mean, I came in and did a resupply. You had people from Patagonia that came in and filmed, was it? Um, and stuff like that. So you had, we did. Visitors? We did. We we actually um, we had over three hundred people come in and bring resupplies. Uh, we were sort of overwhelmed, you know, uh, by the number of people that wanted to come in, and so we we would set up these resupplies approximately every two weeks, um, and we we set the date uh, in a place, uh, sort of a rough place where we would meet people, um, and then. Uh, people could sign up through our expedition manager, Levi, who works for the campaign to save the boundary waters. You know, the, on July 17th, I want to, uh, bring in the supplies. And so, um, 
different groups would sign up. Uh, some of the people, you know, were good friends and a lot of the people we'd never met before, but they just love the Boundary Waters. And so they wanted to to help and bring some supplies in. It's a really unique place. I mean, it's it's a different type of adventure that isn't that can be done by a whole lot of people. You don't have to be necessarily super fit. Um, you don't have to, you know, chew off all these big extreme things. Um, just about anyone can do it with a canoe and, you know, a little bit of teamwork paddling. Um, sometimes that doesn't seem to have worked so well because I did a trip with Angie after that and she didn't necessarily like my canoe work all the time. <laughs> so, so yeah, it's a then, little different. Yeah. So then you guys wrote a book about it after the fact, I know I touch you were on the pod, our very first podcast maybe. And then we kind of gave up podcasting, um, for like four years, uh, or three years, something like that. And you said that it was actually really difficult getting used to sleeping in a bed when you were out of, out of the wilderness or getting sleeping in a house or something like that. It was, yeah. You know, we, um, so we came out and we spent our first night, uh, at this, at a cabin in this, uh, little mom and pop resort, uh, called River Point Lodge right on the on Birch Lake, right by the edge of the wilderness area. And, uh, and yeah, like we could hear, you know, like, um, like, you know, the refrigerator humming and like just little noises that you would just totally not think of. Um, and, and we actually, Amy went outside, like, you know, at 10 o'clock at night, um, cause she, she wanted to tie the canoe up cause she would, we, we couldn't hear the wind. We couldn't hear leaves rustling. We couldn't hear anything outside. And so she was convinced that there was, you know, something was going to happen and the canoe would blow away or something. And because we couldn't hear, we were like sort of, uh, isolated from the natural sounds that we were so used to hearing. And it took about two weeks before I think we really, uh, started sleeping soundly again. Hmm. That's interesting. So, um, so yeah, going into then, so you did a year in a in the wilderness, and then the North American Odyssey. Was this before or after that? Yeah, so the North American Odyssey was before. Um, so Amy and I got married in March of 2010, and then we we took off on this. We called it our honeymoon. Um, it, it took three years, and we traveled about 12,000 miles by canoe, kayak, and dog sled. We started in Bellingham near Seattle. Mm -hmm. uh, and we, we kayaked up the, the inside passage up to Skagway, Alaska. And then we hiked over the Chilkoot Pass and paddled down the Yukon. And then we hiked over the Tombstone Mountains in the Yukon and, uh, and then paddled down the, through the Peel watershed to the mouth of the Mackenzie River by the Arctic Ocean. And then we paddled and dog sledded from there back to Lake Superior. And then we kayaked from Lake Superior out to the St. Lawrence Seaway and then down the East coast to Key West. Um, so it was a, yeah, it was a long journey. We were, you know, sleeping in a tent and traveling under our own power for 27 of 36 months. We started in April of 2010 and reached Key West in April of 2013. Um, and so, yeah, we, you know, that journey was really, um, transformed us in a lot of ways and i think it 
we were in these amazing places like, you know, the Peel watershed is um, Canada's largest undeveloped watershed uh, with these big, uh, dramatic, um, high alpine mountains and uh, wild rushing rivers. And um, but uh, just like in the Boundary Waters, there's a very um, controversial uh uh, mining and uh, mineral exploration development of that watershed going on right now. And, uh, and, you know, seeing that, seeing roads, uh, you know, being punched in, in these vast wild places, uh, you know, different sort of um, impacts along the way really made us realize that we needed to, you know, try to help protect some of these, you know, vast stretches of wilderness that we were experiencing that very few other people uh, necessarily get to visit. Yeah, that's an impressive trip. I mean, that, that's really just a like a wow. Now, you said prior to the podcast, you guys are working on a book about that. Is there video content and stuff to go along with it? Or Yeah, so we, so the main uh, sort of, the reason that we did that journey was um, for many years, we've run a, a nonprofit called the Wilderness Classroom. Um, it works with elementary and middle school kids. So we had about uh, 80,000 elementary like third through eighth grade students from 600 plus schools all across uh, the U.S. that were sort of following our journey. We were using satellite technology to beam back information into their classrooms and they use polls to decide what what we should do and what we should study. And so basically we were, we were like teaching them about all these different ecosystems and animals and um, indigenous cultures that we were, you know, experiencing along the way. And so um, on the Wilderness Classroom website, there, you know, there's all sorts of, you know, photos and journal entries and content. Um, that's you know still available and now we're in the process of of uh you know writing a book for adults uh uh so so hopefully that will be out in the next year or so no now you're an, you're a teacher by trade aren't you or an educator well not really i mean not formally but uh oh, okay. but yeah yeah i um but i started the wilderness classroom with another gentleman uh eric frost and he he was a teacher uh you know he taught in elementary school and and so t- together we sort of formed the organization and then um and that yeah he provided a lot of the sort of the educational backbone but yeah i mean i've been leading you know, working as an outdoor educator, leading uh, canoeing and kayaking and dog sledding trips for 20 years and and uh, and then, then working with schools through the wilderness classroom. So I just came about it as sort of a roundabout way. Now, is the wilderness classroom still um, getting a lot of people involved? Yeah, you know, it's yeah, people still are definitely using the website. Um, the last few years we haven't. It's we, it's been a little bit of a lull. We haven't been doing too much with it. Um but actually, with what's going on now with all the kids, uh, you know, basically a lot of most schools in the country closed right now. Uh, we're the last few weeks we've been ra- working on ramping it up and, uh, you know, try to help make sure that uh, folks know about the resources because there's tons of information on there for kids uh, so that they can start using that um, uh parents can start using it at home with their kids and um, classrooms can, can connect with it. Cause we are seeing a lot more traffic just because of the, the way students are learning, you know, in right now uh, really being uh, doing all of their uh, learning virtually rather than being in a classroom. 
it's actually kind of funny because I mean, it was like an immediate shift. I mean, there's been this kind of slow shift over 10, 20 years or whatever, like, well, you can learn online or you can homeschool with partial online or whatever. Right now, all of a sudden it's like, boom, most of the country is online. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. Yeah. Um, what, what, what got you thinking about the North American Odyssey and like, like, I guess what had you done previously that was like, Oh yeah, we, we can probably pull this off. Well, um, we, before that we, uh, we did a similar journey, but across South America, um, we, we started on the coast of Northern Peru and we bicycled over the Andes mountains. And then we spent about six months canoeing down tributaries to the Amazon river and then following the Amazon to the mouth, um, in, in, uh, Eastern Brazil. Uh, and so, yeah, we just, we thought sort of, well, we've crossed one continent. What should we do next? And we thought, well, let's, let's cross another one. And we just started picking all these places like, you know, the, Great Bear Rainforest uh, in along the Pacific Northwest and and the Everglades in Florida and the you know the Lake Superior and the and Great Bear Lake Great Slave Lake all these places that we'd always wanted to visit and we just sort of um, linked them all together into this long journey. Wow. <laughs> I mean, you guys, you guys have done more exploration than I venture. I mean, I don't know how many people alive have done more long-term remote trips um, than you guys. <laughs> I don't know of any of them. So, well, there's, there are a few out there, but we, you know, we, we sort of broke it down into chunks. We broke that journey into five stages uh, and then basically while we were doing one, we were sort of like planning for the next one, you know? <laughs> um, and, uh, and so, uh, you know, there was always the, like, I mean, there were the day-to-day -day logistics, but like, it was sort of like the, the, you know, the next sort of six or eight months or whatever, those were sort of laid out. Um, and then it was, it was more like the six months, um, after that, that was where we were, you know, calling communities that we would be, you know, in nine months from now or a year from now to try and figure out how we could, you know, organize our routes through their area or, you know, where would be a good place to get a resupply or, uh, you know, leave our canoe that we were going to we were going to use a year from now or whatever. So it was like a big puzzle. We were always sort of working on a different section of it as, as we were, you know, slowly progressing. So you guys didn't have like a plan that was like, we're going to be pretty hard and fast to our plan for this whole thing. It was more like you had a slightly looser plan and maybe the first 30 or 60 days were, relatively planned out and then at the same time you adjusted and modified things based on how things were going yeah i mean for the, yeah for the most part i mean you know the the basic route that we took ended up being very close to what we had drawn on the map uh you know as we were planning in 2009 um and we reached key west you know the week that we had 
said we were going to when we started. So, so it was, we, we followed a pretty, uh, our plan was laid out, but the, the logistics of sort of how we were going to pull it off, uh, the, those, that all sort of came in, in pieces. Cause we just, we couldn't, uh, we, we couldn't plan it all in advance. We just could all, only put the basic framework together and then the nuts and bolts had to fall in place all along the way so were you shipping like a canoe like you're saying like maybe we got to pick this up in florida when we get there were you shipping a canoe somewhere and then being like all right i guess so we'll see it in eight months from now yeah so we so we um so as an example i i drove uh the winter before we started so i guess it would have been like december of 2009 um, I drove some folks from Ely, where we live, um, up to Inuvik on the Arctic Ocean because they were starting a, a, a dog sled trip across the Northwest Passage. And, and so we, we strapped our, the canoe we were going to use in the Yukon to the top of the, the truck. And I dropped that off in Whitehorse. So it would be waiting for us when we got there, you know, whatever that was, like uh, eight months from then or whatever. Uh, and then uh when we were done kayaking we we sent our kayaks back on the ferry uh and then eventually back to lake superior where we would need them again you know so it, mm-hmm. yeah gear was sort of moved around um but we did it on a really tight budget so we never you know we never had a plane fly in and drop off supplies or you know anything like that it was all like some local would would you know put this on in the back of their pickup truck and they'd drive it to their cousin Joe's and then he would, you know, store it for us for three months until we got to their little town or whatever. So uh, there are a lot of people that helped us along the way because we, we didn't have the budget to do, you know, to have real elaborate, you know, fly-ins or, or things like that. Mm-hmm. So did you, had you guys saved then? Like, had you saved for a couple of years or something or, or how were you able to fund even, even just having three years off, right? Right. So, I mean, it was our job We uh, because, uh, you know, we were, we met directly with over 25,000 students during school assemblies throughout the, the time. Um, right. So, so we, uh, about a third of our the money came from schools that paid us to come in and do presentations. Uh, and then about a third of the money was um, like, you know, companies uh, donating gear uh, or, or um, individuals making tax deductible donations to the wilderness classroom. And then, uh, and then the final third were grants uh, from mostly fairly small private foundations that, uh, you know, sort of, made the bulk of it so so i mean we we were living simply and uh uh and keeping our overhead low but but uh we were able Mm -hmm. to raise the funds to sort of um to do the whole thing and and engage all the the tens of thousands of students that were following along cool so so when you met with these kids in class were they like just in awe like wow you guys are superheroes or were, were they what was the feeling? Well, it really depends on the on the age, right? I mean, like uh, they were all really into uh, like the animals, you know. I mean, like when we were paddling up the inside passage, we had a, a pair of humpback whales 
uh, you know, they weigh like 50,000 pounds and they're huge. And they came and sat within like 15 feet of us on the surface, you know, and you could see this dinner plate size eye staring at you, you know, just like massive. So, so, um, you know, hearing stories about, you know, about the whales and uh, the bears and alligators and, you know, all the different animals, you know, herds of caribou migrating, you know, different things. The, that was a real draw for the kids. Uh, and, and, you know, the youngest kids, that's really what their focus was on. The, the, the older kids, as they started getting into, you know, fifth, sixth, um, seventh grade and older, I think that there they started to have a better understanding of like, wow, this is sort of crazy what you all are doing. And, they, and they're um, asking more questions about like, you know, what did you eat? And, you know, how did you get from place to place? And they're, they're interested in some of the, the, you know, bigger picture things. Yeah. How did, how many miles did you dog sled and what was, how cold did it get? Cause I mean, it sounds like you dog sledded pretty far North for quite a long time. Yeah, we so we spent one winter dock sledding uh, from the Mackenzie River across Great Bear Lake uh, and then down um, across Great Slave Lake. Uh, and it was about a thousand miles. Um, and we, you know, the coldest we had was about 55 below zero without the wind chill. Um, it was cold. It, and I think the thing about the cold was that I think. Uh, we weren't quite prepared for was, you know, here in Northern Minnesota, we get cold, uh, you know, 40 below or 45 below, uh, is not uncommon. I mean, it's, it's cold, but, but we get it. Every, most winters will have weather like that, but, but on a, you know, if you wake up in the morning and it's 40 below zero in the middle of the day, it's probably going to at least warm up to like minus 15 or something, you know, uh, but, but there, you know, if, if it was 50 below zero, like the high at two in the afternoon would be like, you know, 45 below zero or 48. I mean, that's like the temperature didn't change like, cause they're, the sun's so low in the sky. So, uh, so that was, that made it sort of brutal cause it just, it's like, it was like living in a deep freeze. Um, it, it, it must've been pretty dark too, right? Yeah, we, well, we waited, uh, we didn't actually, we went up there, uh, we, so we came back uh, at the end of October uh, to do school assemblies and train up our dogs, uh, and we led a couple dog sledding trips for Wintergreen Dog Sled Lodge in, in near the Boundary Waters, and then we, we headed back up in early November, or early January, and then uh, we trained dogs up there, uh, for a couple of weeks. So it was like, um, around the first of February, I think when we actually took off, uh, and we dog sled from then until like the end of April. Um, and so the light was already started to come back. We, we waited just, I mean, it was, the days were still short. It, you know, it was getting light about 10 o'clock and it was getting dark at like, you know, three 30 or something like that. But, uh, but you know, earlier in the winter, yeah, it's like, there's hardly any daylight at all. So yeah, we, that, that took a while to get used to. So how did you handle how cold it was for your guys and also for your dogs? I mean, negative 50 with a high of negative 45 isn't, isn't really joking around. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I don't know when it's that cold, you, you just can't stop, you know, it's like basically as soon as you, leave the tent you 
or, or whatever, you know, it, you have to start moving and you have to keep moving uh, and you have to wear a lot of clothes and you have to get really good at like, you know, clipping things or tying things or whatever with, you know, with glo- heavy gloves on because um, you really can't expose your your skin. Uh, and we adapted. Um, we talked to Ely is sort of an interesting place. We have like all these like polar explorers basically that that live here. Um, and so, you know, we're talking to all these people that, you know, skied to the North Pole and dog sledded to the North Pole and dog sledded across Antarctica. And, you know, I mean, like, um, so, so they gave us a lot of tips and tricks. Like, uh, we insulated the handles of our, uh, of our ski poles with, um, with like the foam insulation that you use for covering pipes so that, uh, so that we didn't have to hold on to the, to the ski poles because the, the ski poles would be cold and they would, you know, sort of conduct the heat into your hands without extra insulation. Um, and like big loops on our, on our ski poles so that we could fit giant gloves or giant mitts, uh, through the, through the, the loops. Um, cause the normal ones wouldn't fit, uh, you know, all sorts of like, little things like that that people that had been in even harsher conditions than 50 below uh sort of taught us yeah don't don't blow your dog whistle (laughs) yeah um and the dogs are amazing they didn't they 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 never really seemed cold i mean i think when in the days when it really was like 50 below um maybe they were a little bit cold but uh they 20 below to 45 below or something that seemed like that's like their prime operating temperature. I mean, they're like, they have like another gear when it's that cold. They just, they just want to go. It's, uh, they're pretty amazing. The dogs that we were using are these Canadian Inuit dogs and Malamutes, like big furry freight dogs. And it seemed like the colder it was, the, the happier they were. Huh. Were you, uh, were you eating like a, a pound of butter a day or something to try to, stay warm yeah we we were eating about six thousand calories a day uh so yeah we, you know that's like eating i don't know like three or four thanksgiving dinners every day so we were really packing on the food and yeah it was like we were, our appetites were uh insatiable we just eat and eat and eat and lots of yeah lots of peanut butter lots of butter lots of fat hmm. now, now um how did you feed the dogs? I mean, uh, did you have, I mean, it seems like a lot of stuff that you would have really had to manage. Right. And that yeah. food, food freezing on you could be a real concern as well. Right. I mean, when it freezes, it's almost pretty much useless as well. Um, how big of a concern was that? Yeah. So when we left, uh, when we left Ely, we had 5,000 pounds of food, uh, our human food and, and dog food, uh, and, and the dogs and the humans, we all ate about two to two and a half pounds of food a day. And we had 12 sled dogs. So there were, and we had another couple that was traveling with us. So there were basically 16, uh, units that need to be fed dogs and humans. We ate different things, but like they weighed the same amount approximately. So, uh, you know, we were eating like about 35 pounds of food a day between the dogs and the humans. And, um, uh, the dogs, we fed a real high, uh, 
high powered, like high fat, high protein dog kibble uh, called red paw. And then uh, we cut up uh, chunks of lard. So depending on how cold it was, uh, we would give them, you know, like a between an eighth of a pound and a, a quarter or a third of a pound of lard, just, you know, pure fat uh, to just give them extra calories. And then uh, the, the traditionally the, the native people in that area would feed their sled dog fish. That's a, a lot of what they ate was fish. And we went through eight uh, remote communities that were, you know, there's no way to get there except for ice roads for a few months of the year or by airplane. Uh, and, and so in those, a lot of those communities, they, everyone used to travel by sled dog, but uh, then in the seventies, snowmobiles took over. So now there aren't really dogs, but all the elders remember it. And so uh, often they, people would, um, would offer us frozen fish to, to feed our dogs. And so uh, that was a real treat. We, and so we'd try to fatten up the dogs by, you know, tossing them, you know, two, three, four, five pounds of frozen fish uh, at a time when we were resting in communities. That's awesome. That's awesome. So on the same trip, you encountered basically alligators and, you know, sled dogs and 50 below. Yeah. Yeah. A couple of years apart, but yeah. <laughs> so, so after that, and you guys, as I said, you're right, you're writing a book on this, right? Um, that sounds super interesting. Um, half, after you did the Boundary Waters, and you just mentioned this briefly, um, you guys did a 14 month sailing trip as well. Yeah. We, uh, when we, after we finished that, the North American Odyssey, we just, we couldn't really move into a house. Like it just was too weird. And so we ended up buying this beat up old sailboat from a friend for a couple grand. And, uh, and we lived on that for a couple summers and sort of got into sailing. And, uh, so that it, 2016 after we got out of the wilderness we had sold that boat and we got another sailboat and um and so yeah we wanted to write this book about our north american odyssey and after we signed a deal with the publisher you know they give you an advance and stuff and we thought mm -hmm. hey you know like we could write this book from anywhere and so we just thought well let's go sailing and so we we took off uh in uh august of 2018 and we we sailed uh, through the Great Lakes and uh, took the Erie Canal to the Hudson River and entered the ocean by New York City and sailed down uh, to the Bahamas and spent the winter there. And then in the spring, like this, uh, like end of April, just about now, we we um, sailed from the Bahamas up the East Coast and we ended up in Nova Scotia uh, and spent the summer up in, in Nova Scotia. Uh, beautiful up there, just amazing. And um, uh, yeah. So, and so we left the boat in Nova Scotia last October and then, you know, came back to Minnesota to work for the winter. Um, and so we're going to return to the boat, but while well, the border's closed now, so we're not sure when, but <laughs> our plan has been to go head further North from there when we can. Hmm. So did you learn to sail then, um, on Lake Superior? Yeah. Yeah. We, we spent, uh, a few seasons, uh, sort of teaching ourselves to sail. We got, you know, we got some mentors and stuff that really helped us along the way. And actually the first, uh, 
we call it adventure advocacy. It's what we did uh, with the A Year in the Wilderness, partnering with the Campaign to Save the Boundary Waters. And the first sort of adventure advocacy project we did was in the fall of 2014, we uh, we paddled a canoe from the Boundary Waters to Washington, D.C. Uh, and that was a 100-day journey. And, and um, people signed the canoe. It was like a petition that people would sign. And we did 40 about 40 uh, events along the way in all sorts of communities. And, uh, you know, we left in the fall in September and we couldn't really paddle the canoe on Lake Superior in the fall with any regularity. So, so we decided to put the canoe on our sailboat uh, for a few weeks and sail it across Lake Superior and Lake Huron uh, and then continue paddling. So, um, so that was that was our first. Uh, I mean, it was like 600 miles of sailing uh, during that that paddle to DC. That was like the first time we sailed, you know, any great distance. Um, and then we just slowly built up from there. Hmm. That's cool. So let's go let's go back a little bit into you mentioned it um, crossing the Amazon and all that. How long did that trip take? So that trip we did, uh, it was basically three, uh, about uh, eight week uh, trips. And so we, we, we did the first one in the fall of 2007. Uh, and we sort of, we biked over the Andes that took a couple of weeks. And then we paddled through sort of tributaries that, that led uh, to a town called Iquitos, which is, I'm pretty sure it's the largest town you can't drive to in the world it's like three hundred thousand people but there's no roads to it because it's surrounded by sort of jungle and marsh uh and then we flew home and uh you know led dog sledding trips did school assemblies and then the spring we went back for another two months and kept going down uh down the amazon through colombia and brazil and then uh flew home and worked some more and did more school assemblies and then went down for the final two months, uh, you know, paddling down the Amazon. And that last one, the Amazon gets huge. It's like it, near the mouth, it's like 20 miles wide. It's like this, they, the locals wow. call it the North Coast and the South Coast. Cause it's like, like instead of an ocean, because because the, the banks of the river are so far apart. It's like just massive. You sort of pick one side and stick with that the whole way. Mm. Um, yeah, so... You know, that was also through the wilderness classroom. So we had, you know, tens of thousands of schools following. And, and then before and after each journey, we'd go and travel around the country and, and visit schools and, you know, talk about poison dart frogs and macaws and tapirs and all, you know, uh, all sorts of animals in the rainforest and, you know, why rainforests are so important and need to be conserved, that, that type of thing. So, so besides getting back to, um, your sailboat, what's, what's next? What's, what's the next big one? Uh, well, we're, we're in the final editing stage of this book, uh, the, the, about the North American Odyssey. So we're just wrapping that up and then, you know, we're writing articles. Um, I just wrote an article for Ben's journal about, um, sort of dealing with isolation and sort of change, like what, what we're sort of all experiencing right now. And, you know, just sort of doing some stuff like that. Um, and then, 
um, yeah, we've mostly just been really looking forward to getting back to our boat and, and uh, you know, sailing up through Newfoundland and Labrador and seeing some sort of wilder uh, parts of, of the North Atlantic. Um, but I, we're going to, I think the lakes are getting ready to, to thaw up here. It's, it's spring here in the Boundary Waters, so we're going to, we're going to pack up our teepee tent and we're going to head out for a little bit here uh, in the next, in the next week or so and just spend some time out in the wilderness. Cause this is uh, this is one of our favorite times to be out there. You know, the birds are returning and uh, you know, the lakes are thawing and it's just that you can start to smell the earth for the first time. And so it's a, it's a nice time to be out there. Now, did you ever feel unsafe in any of these journeys? I mean, you've basically, done exploration from Central America to the Mackenzie River in Arctic Ocean? Did, were there times where you're like, this just doesn't feel safe and we want to get out of here? Or was it all, everyone was pretty much, you felt good the whole time? <laughs> well, I mean, obviously there, I mean, it's just like anything, right? I mean, there, there certainly are moments of, of, uh, where you're scared, you know, uh, uh, very few of those have had anything to do with humans. You know, it's almost always like a big storm or, uh, you know, something like that. But, uh, but, you know, it's like 99% is like, is like boredom and monotony and then, or, or, you know, sublime moments. And then there's like 1% where you're just like, Oh my gosh, can't, what is going on? You know, <laughs> but, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, we try to avoid that. I, I don't think we're really like risk takers or anything like that. But uh, but every once in a while, you know, uh, there's a crazy storm and there's trees crashing down all around you or, you know, you're crossing a massive bay on Great Bear Lake and a blizzard comes and it's a total white, white out. It's like your dog sliding through a ping pong ball. You can't see anything around you. Um, uh but you know those things stick with you forever. I think we always remember the hard, hard times and sort of the easy ones. Sometimes uh, drift out of our consciousness. Well, that is awesome. Totally awesome. Yeah, man. Sounds like um, sounds like you've done done some things for sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so. I think, I think we're going to kind of wrap this up and stuff, but I definitely want to stay in touch with you guys. Um, how can people follow and learn more about what you guys do um, through social media and other stuff? How can people? Sure. Yeah. That? So on um, like Instagram and Facebook, uh, Freeman Explore is our, our handle. Um, and we, you know, we post on there pretty regularly. Um, you know, if you have kids, I would recommend checking out wilderness classroom. We've got a lot of educational resources on there for mostly elementary middle school kids. Um, and then, you know, encourage you to uh, visit save the boundarywaters.org as well. Um, you know, there you can sign the petition and take action and help us protect the boundary waters, which is, you know, really a national treasure, a piece of public lands that, that I think we all can, uh, can help protect. Great. You got anything else to add, Dennis? Uh, no, I don't. Uh, thanks. I'm sure I will think of all kinds of questions for the next time we talk. Um, no, it was, it was great. It's crazy 
that you're able to do all of those things um, in one lifetime, right? <laughs> I know it's it's a pleasure. It's a pleasure having worked with you guys. You know, well, it's we appreciate it, and uh, it's been really a really fun talking with you all. And uh, yeah, we look forward to listening to the final product. Awesome, thank you. Yep, awesome. have a great day. Thanks.